this question is for Rabbi. Um, you mentioned the story of, of that, uh, I, I think you said he was Jewish and he was shot by, uh, at that, I, I think it was a concentration camp or something like that. And I'm going to play the devil's advocate for a bit and pretend I'm Sam Harris, no pun intended, of course. Um, you stated that God was watching. God watched the gentleman pull the trigger. If God was watching, why didn't he make that trigger not work? Why didn't he make that poor individual just pass out while he was digging the grave? Uh, okay. I believe Sam Harris would ask that type of question and demand an answer. Yes, I appreciate that question. Um, the Playing the devil's advocate, you said that why didn't God keep the man from pulling the trigger rather than allowing the man to pull the trigger and then watch over him and uh, bringing about some kind of judgment? I would say this to you, that the supreme ethic that God has given to us is the ethic of love. It is the peak of all intellectual and emotional alignment. This thing we call love, which places value upon the other person of worth and as something to be protected. It was interesting of all people, it was Oscar Wilde who on his deathbed in his 40s, by his lover by his side, Robbie Ross, he turned to Robbie and he said, did you love any one of those little boys for their own sake? It was an incredible question to ask by a man who was a hedonist on his deathbed in his 40s. And he said, Robbie, did you ever love any one of those little boys for their own sake? And Robbie Ross said, no, I can't say I did. He said, bring me a minister. Bring me a minister. And it was in his magnificent poem, The Ballad of Reading Jail, that Oscar Wilde said, only Christ was big enough to cleanse his heart and forgive him for all that he had done. The point even the hedonist realized was that in pleasure also, value and love are the supreme ethics that can be treasured. But you can never have love without intrin intrinsically weaving into it the freedom of the will. You cannot have love without the freedom of the will. If you are compelled by some machine to a certain decision, you can never love. You can comply, but you will never be choosing to express that sentiment and the reality of love. If love is a supreme ethic, and freedom is indispensable to love, and God's supreme goal for you and for me is that we will love him with all of our hearts and love our neighbors as ourselves, for him to violate our free will would be to violate that which is a necessary component so that love can flourish and love can be expressed. If you're asking for God to always stop the trigger, why not God stop everything else? Next time you hold a cup of boiling water, he makes it frozen water instead. Next time you're about to cross the street and you're going to be hit, he pulls your leg back. What you're asking for is a different entity than humanity. 
as wonderful as it may seem that in stopping that you think he is protecting you from that which is destructive the greatest denial that you're asking for is the freedom of your will to be able to choose and to love God with all your heart and all your soul. When you've got love as the supreme ethic and the freedom of the will to choose that love, all of the other contingencies come in and can become explained why it is possible to either choose or to reject so that love can ultimately reign supreme. If you want compliance and, a and some kind of a mechanical response, your question itself will self-destruct. You're asking the question because you're free to ask it, and you're free to ask it because you're free to love. And when you love him, in spite of all of the contraries that you see around us, you're trusting him for having the supreme wisdom and the knowledge to ultimately bring a pattern out of it all. We think, for example, we know so much. The story is told in Mid-Eastern folklore of this man who lost his horse that ran away. And when the horse ran away, the neighbor came to him and said, you know, bad luck, isn't it? Your horse is gone. He said, what do I know about these things? A few days later, the horse came back with 20 other wild horses. And the neighbor came and said, amazing, it's not bad luck, it's good luck. You've got 20 more. Man says, what do I know about these things? His young son is going and taming one of the new horses. That young horse kicks him and breaks his leg. The neighbor comes and says, terrible, isn't it? Your son's leg is broken. Bad luck that these horses came. The fellow says, what do I know about good luck and bad luck? A few days go by and a bunch of thugs are coming looking for recruits to join their gang. And they're looking for all the able-bodied young men. And they're about to pick this young man but find out his leg is broken. And they say, we don't want him. We're going to move on to the next house. So the man comes and says, good luck, isn't it? Your son's leg was broken. In one little series of episodes we don't know what lies ahead why don't you wait till you stand before God face to face and you will find out there were reasons why he didn't stop that trigger so that you will see the heinousness of evil and see the majesty of love and good managing to navigate yourself but the as a pilgrim's progress to come to the <laughs> celestial city. You spoke of the exclusivity of Christianity and um, the notion that we can only truly come to know God through knowing Jesus. Um, I'm sure in your travels you've been to many places where a lot of the people haven't even heard of Jesus Christ, much less seen a Bible. I'm just wondering whether God gives all the people of the earth the possibility to know uh, God through Jesus, and if so, how does he do it? Yes, sir, I... Marvelous question, and if you don't mind me asking you, I just love that accent. Is that New Zealand, or where are you from, South Africa? I'm from Australia. Where? Australia. Australia. Wow. <laughs> we shall root for your cricket team when they're not playing India. Okay. <laughs> thanks, for, uh, thanks for asking that question, and I want to read something for you here. Please give me your name. My name is Kim. And here, here's what I want to read for you from Acts chapter 17. The God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in temples built by hands. And he is not served by human hands as if he needed anything because he himself gives all men life and breath and everything else. From one man he made every nation of men that they should inhabit the whole earth and he determined the time set forth for them and the exact places where they should live. God did this so that men would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him, though he is not far from each one of us. Your question is a very 
deep question which has been asked for many, many uh, decades. Uh, we ask it, I ask it as a proclaimer. Sometimes I go into a city or a place where people have not heard anything like what you're presenting. We hear them say that and so on. God reminds us in his word and in many illustrations of history that he is able to bypass even the human mechanism in order to speak to men and women. And he does this not only through public proclaimers. Now with the television and media and the written page and all of that, uh, people can read about him in, in various places, never having heard a preacher or never having come into contact with the church or whatever. And one of the most remarkable things, and I want to tell you this, uh, one of the most remarkable things I've heard as I travel is the parts of the world in which God has spoken many times through dreams and visions. It's happened in India, it's happened in Iran, it's happened in places of the world that I could name for you. And let me give you just one simple illustration to sustain what I'm saying because it only demonstrates for us that he is near people who truly call upon him. I was in, um, in a country, I'll have to leave this unnamed, but my wife and I were invited for dinner by a man who came from a very troubled part of the world, the majority, 99 point something percent of whom are Muslim people. And this fellow asked if he could have dinner with us. He'd read some of my books and a Chinese Christian businessman brought him to meet my wife and me. It's such a fascinating story that it's worthy of repetition here. He only introduced himself with a name that he said, it's not my real name. He said, I belong to the army of my country. I have been trained to kill without feelings. So that was my training. My brother is a general in that army. He said, Mr. Ravi, for seven years in a row every night, I had a dream of Jesus. Seven years in a row every night. He said, I was in this army where I was trained to kill, and the other thing I did was learned how to make false passports. That's all I did. Kill people at certain orders, make false passports for people to get into other countries. And as he started talking, I said, by the way, how are you here? He said, I make passports. Don't ask me any more questions. And we started, continued to have dinner. He said, seven years in a row I had the dream, and my mother told me, get out of here or your brothers will kill you. He said, I'm not going to become a Christian. She said, that's all right. You're having this dream. They'll see what's going to happen. You get out of here. He said, I left there, and I have arrived here, met this Chinese businessman. He talked to me. We became friends. He said, I have committed my life now to Jesus Christ. He was in a seminary in this country preparing to go back. He said he'll have a passport when he needs it, to go back and re-enter his country and begin to preach out there. So my wife looked at him and said, what has been the biggest difference since you came to know Christ? He said, I don't have that dream anymore. <laughs> Seven years in a row he had that. So Jim, the question is a profound one, but I truly and sincerely believe what, G, what, what the Bible says. You shall search for me and find me when you shall search for me with all your heart. It is not the volume of content that you need, as much of the intent on your heart that cries out and says, God, I need you, save me. And I believe he reveals Christ to you, principally through his word or through some other person or through a vision or through a dream and brings you to himself. There's a book written called Persian Springs, which counts a dozen different testimonies in the same way that I've given to you. If you go to Taylor University in Indiana today, there's a big hall there called Sammy Morris Hall. 
It was an African youngster by the name of Sammy Morris living in a village who believed there was an answer to Christ through God, through, to God, but he didn't know the name. He got onto a ship, arrived in New York, and went to a, somebody looking, went into a church. They introduced him to Christ. He became a famed preacher, a committed preacher to his own people. Today, that hall in Taylor University is named after Sammy. So I just say to you that as rich a question as it is, God has ways of reaching people, and I truly believe the judge of all the earth will do right to whom much is given, much shall be required. And I think God will judge you in the light of what he has revealed to you and what you know to be true. One more, sir. Go ahead. Yeah. Um, Jesus spoke in a lot of parables, which in my culture, in my world, because I'm Arab, we're accustomed to that. Yes, but sir. parables are too abstract. You can't take that to the bank. Uh, parables are not the law. Uh, but, you know, all the, the thing that you just mentioned is the reason why there are 1,001 churches and denominations around. Okay. The Christianity yeah. is not united, and I think that's why. You know, I appreciate what you're saying, and I think there's a lot of truth in what you're saying, but you're forgetting an awful lot, too. There are scores of Islamic sects as well. Scores of them. The first three caliphs were murdered, assassinated. Why? Two of them were by counter-Muslims. So you've got the Seveners and the Twelvers and the Ismailis and the Ahmadiyyas and the Shiites and the Sunnis and, the, uh, uh, and, and on and on and on. So yeah, let me finish. Let me finish. So my point to you is, your point is well taken if you understand one thing. That ultimately, you and I are not Christians by the denomination or the abomination we belong to. We are Christians by becoming followers of the... What's your name, sir? My name is Hani. I'm, and I'll be glad after the meeting to stay and talk to you. I saw you here, and I appreciate your questions. You know, this is so interesting, born and raised in India. I used to hear this all the time. This is what I also said. What's the Methodist? What's this? You know, the, the, the story was told about a man who said Jesus healed two people with mud, uh, of eyesight. With one, he used mud, and with the other, he didn't use mud. He said, thank God it didn't happen in our day. We'd have two denominations, the Muddites and the anti-Muddites. <laughs> you know, it's, it's true. There are many of these sects. But you know what is so beautiful about that possibility? Unity does not have to be uniformity. What ultimately defines whether you're a Christian or not is not what denomination you belong to, but whether you know Jesus Christ in your heart as well. And that you can come to know too. But thanks very much, and we'll see you after the meeting. Yeah. Let's leave aside Christianity and historical examples for a second. All night you guys have been grappling with issues like morality and you know, what is right, what is wrong, and meaning. But my question is simply, why are you so afraid of subjective moral reasoning? I mean, do you think that we're all just going to start raping and pillaging just because we don't have a book to tell us what to do? I mean, are you afraid of that? Like, I'm not, because that's not going to happen. And that, yeah, Nazis were bad, but there were Christian Nazis and there were atheist Nazis. So... I don't see... What are you so afraid of? Do you lock your door at night? Yeah. <laughs> <clears throat> sure. <laughs> you know, I hear what you're saying. Sounds very cavalier, though. My goodness. If we weren't afraid of all of this, we would not be in a national debt. The China is secular. Uh, uh, sorry? China is secular. Sorry? 
China is secular. That's right. What about, what does that mean? I mean, they're not raping and pillaging, and neither are we. Oh my, oh my, oh my, oh my, oh my. Have you read what happened during the Red Guards Rebellion? Have you read what happened during the Boxer Rebellion? Do you know who has killed more people in the 20th century than China and Russia? 60 million apiece? Wow. It makes the Holocaust seem tame. The 20th century became the bloodiest century in history. And the reason it became the bloodiest century in history I can see is you could just see the weapons of our warfare were piling up and there was no guiding principle to take us anywhere. Now, in a perfect world, yes, we don't need to be afraid. Have you seen what happens in our courts of law where people supposedly love each other and all that comes about in hate and vitriol and damage? I don't think the question is fairly stated as what have you, are you afraid of. I'm just saying it is basically unlivable. That's, I didn't conclude that. An atheist like Jean-Paul Sartre concluded it. We killed more people in the 20th century than the previous 19 put together. And your question is uh, what are we afraid of? The fact of the matter is if morality is purely subjective, then you have absolutely nothing from stopping anybody for being a subjective moralist to choose to just zing one through your forehead and say, that's my answer. You know, how, do you, how do you stop that? Obviously, you don't believe that's the way it should be. No, neither do I. So it's not a case of what am I afraid of. It's a case of the fact that if you're willing to say to me that uh, moral reasoning can be purely subjective, I just say to you, look out, you ain't seen nothing yet if everybody believed what you did. Do you know, uh, funny, interesting, when I was in, in the Soviet Union, former Soviet Union, Stalin eliminated 15 million of his own people. 15 million of his own people. And at the center for geopolitical strategy, you know, they didn't want to even name his name and so on. His daughter Svetlana, made the comment, it is quoted both by Malcolm Muggeridge in his writings and by historian Paul Johnson in modern times. Svetlana was standing by the bedside of her father before he died. She said the last thing he did was clench his fist over the heavens one more time, put his head back on the pillow, and he was gone. This is his daughter raising the question, whatever got into my father to have that kind of hatred and hostility? And when 15 million were killed of his own people, it is interesting that the faculty members and the general who chatted with me there, my wife will tell you, sat around the table with tears in his eyes when he watched what had been done to his own country by his own leadership. So subjective morality would be very good if we all wanted to be nice people and live around each other without any uh, fear of each other. But the reason you lock your doors and the reason we have our police and the reason we have our military and the reason we have our law courts is because when subjective morality becomes totally subjectivized, this is what happens in society. So it's a great idea, but I hope nobody absorbs it. Thank you. We go on to the next one there. Thank you. Once in a while I get people that really, that, or that claim they don't believe in evolution. And my response generally is, so why not? 
Really, why not? You guys believe 20 billion years ago there was a big bang where nothing exploded and produced everything. 4.6 billion years ago the earth cooled down, made a hard rocky crust, it rained on the rocks for millions of years, turned them into soup, and the soup came alive 3 billion years ago. Found somebody to marry, and something to eat of course, and slowly evolved into everything we see today. There are some lies in our science books. Taught it for 15 years. Even though I'm not teaching it anymore, I still like to study. It's so many neat things to learn. We're going to cover some of that tonight. I'm not against science. I'm not against schools. I'm not against teachers. Because most of them don't know what they believe. You have to tell them. They teach the kids it all started with a big bang 20 billion years ago. What exploded? This is what the textbooks teach. Before the big bang, there was nothing, literally nothing, an infinitesimal nugget of space. And then something happened, triggering the most colossal explosion in history. Yes, boys and girls, you see, nothing exploded, and uh, here we are. So I asked this professor if I could ask him some questions about the Big Bang. I said, where did all this matter come from? He said, well, we don't know that for sure. I said, well, sir, would you please tell me where the laws came from? The universe is run by laws, gravity, centrifugal force, inertia. Who gave the laws? He said, we don't know that either. I said, sir, could you tell me where the energy came from? You know, it takes energy to make a Big Bang. Who bought the gas to run this machine anyway? Hmm? He said, we don't know that either. I said, uh, sir, could I ask you another question? He said, sure, what else would you like to know? <laughs> what else? What do you mean else? You haven't told me nothing yet. I said, does Berkeley have a merry-go-round? You see, if a spinning object breaks apart in a frictionless environment, the fragments will all spin the same direction. The professor said, yes, I understand about the conservation of angular momentum. I said, well, good. I'd like to ask you a question then, sir. If the whole universe began as a swirling dot, like you said, why do two planets spin backwards? He said, that's interesting. <laughs> I said, no, that's more than interesting. It's kind of hard on your Big Bang Theory. Not only that, six of the moons are spinning backwards. Why? He said, I don't know. Why do you think they're going backwards? Huh. I was hoping he was going to ask that. I said, okay, now, sir, hold it. If I told you that I believe God created the heaven and the earth like the Bible teaches, you're going to say, and where did God come from? And I don't know. But you said, well, we don't know that for sure. We don't know that either. We don't. Don't know tell that me my theory is religious and yours is science. Oh no, sir, they're both religious. Evolution is a religion. You have to believe. So ask the professor, where did the matter come from? He said, I don't know. So basically, I believe in the beginning God, and you believe in the beginning dirt. <laughs> One professor was getting kind of upset about this time. He said, uh, Mr. Hoven, there are hundreds of varieties of dogs in the world. He said, you mean to tell me that you believe all these dogs came from two dogs off of Noah's Ark? You expect me to believe that? I said, sir, would you look at what you're teaching your students? You're teaching your students that all the dogs in the world came from a rock. <laughs> Charles Darwin was disciplined. I mean, he did these extraordinary experiments, this series of experiments. Then they're going to tell the kids, well, we have evidence for this theory. Charlie Darwin stopped off at these islands right there called the Galapagos Islands. Charlie studied the birds very carefully and said, you know what, I think all these birds had a common ancestor. I bet you're right, Charlie. It was a bird. You see 14 kinds of birds and you conclude that birds and bananas are related. Here are these ancient dinosaur bones or fossils. They tell the kids they have evidence of evolution from fossils. I don't think so. If you find a fossil in the dirt, all you know is it died. You don't know that it had any kids. And you sure don't know that it had different kids. You bring in a bone to the judge. Judge, I found this bone in the dirt. This is the ancestor of all the humans today. 
they would laugh at you. You don't know that that's the ancestor of anybody. And why on earth would you think a bone in the dirt can do something animals today cannot do? They'll say, boys and girls, you have two bones in your wrist, radius and ulna. And boys and girls, look at the whale's flipper carefully. Did you know the whale has two bones in his flipper and they're called the radius and the ulna? Same as ours. Wow, who named them, teacher? The whale? <laughs> think about it. I'm here to tell my people it's time to stop believing bull just because I tell you bull with a straight look on their face. Evolution say people came from monkeys. And the question is, why is there still monkeys? Is these the retarded monkeys? They didn't turn into people just yet. Even Stephen Gould admitted the absence of fossil evidence for intermediary stages is a persistent and nagging problem for evolution. See, what's happened, these guys have looked for missing links in the, in the fossil record. They can't find any, and so they say, well, maybe evolution happened so fast it wasn't preserved. Maybe a reptile laid an egg and a bird hatched out. Well, who did that bird marry? Hmm? This process that brought us to be is billions of years old. It happens very fast, billions of years fast. Here is um, radioactivity. We're going to tell the kids in the late 1940s, they invented carbon dating. We're going to explain a little bit about radiometric dating and how it's supposed to work, and then show you that it does not work, okay? It sounds good, but there are some assumptions that mess everything up. If we had walked into a room and found a candle burning on the table, and I asked you the question, when was it lit? You say, I don't know, Mr. Holman, it's burning when I got here. Okay, well then, let's do some empirical science. Let's measure the height of the candle. Suppose the candle is seven inches tall. Who can tell me when it was lit? Okay, nobody. Let's do some more empirical science. Let's measure the rate of burn. Suppose we determine it's burning an inch an hour. When was it lit? You're going to have a hard time telling me unless you're willing to make some assumptions. You find a fossil in the dirt. You can measure how much C14 is in it. Very accurately, by the way. And you can measure how fast it's decaying. That's just like measuring the height of your candle and how fast it's burning. Now, when did that animal die? You don't have a clue. Here's what you ought to consider about carbon dating. Samples of known age, it doesn't work. If it's a sample of unknown age, it is assumed to work. It's just really a hard thing. It's, it's really a hard thing. Your world just becomes fantastically complicated when you don't believe in evolution. Freshly killed seal, carbon dated 1,300 years old. Shells from living snails, carbon dated 27,000 years old. Living penguins, carbon dated 8,000 years old. One part of Dima was 40,000 years old, another part was 26,000, and the wood next to it is 9,000. Then they tell the kids about the geologic column. They say each of the layers is a different age, you know, Cenozoic, Mesozoic, Paleozoic, Archaeozoic, all them Zoic boys. Now, if you get a petrified tree standing up, running through different rock layers, I don't think it's smart to say those layers are vastly different ages. Those trees did not get slowly covered by the sediments over millions of years. They would rot and fall down. Uh, crazy. I just, uh, Let's say, boys and girls, you have an appendix that you don't need anymore. That's a vestigial structure. That's proof of evolution. Well, excuse me, you do need your appendix. The appendix is part of your immune system. If your appendix is taken out, you can still live, okay, but it increases your susceptibility to quite a few diseases. You can live without both your legs and both your arms and both your eyes also. That doesn't prove you don't need them. There are no vestigial organs, and even if there were, that would be the opposite of evolution. That's losing, not gaining. 
I was taught when I went to school, man used to have a tail, but he lost it because he didn't need it. I thought, didn't need it? Have you ever thought how handy a tail would be? <laughs> have you ever come to the door with two sacks of groceries? Wouldn't that be nice, man, be able to grab that door and walk right around and get in? <laughs> lost it because we didn't need it. Man, you could drive the car and tune the radio knob and hold the Coke at the same time. is that natural selection seems to be an incredibly important factor in generating new species. Natural selection, the key evolutionary mechanism Darwin identified. The bad designs get eaten by the good ones, and so all you have is good ones. Why is there still monkeys? Natural selection doesn't cause any evolution. It makes sure the bad ones don't survive, but it's not going to change it to something else. That's what evolution is. If you worked in a factory that produced cars, and your job was to check for defects, and you caught every single mistake and you rejected it. How long would it take that process to change the car to an airplane? You say it'll never change it. That's my point. The students are taught we have evidence from development. Darwin considered this by far the strongest single class of evidence. This textbook says the human embryo growing in the mother has gills like a fish. Those little folds of skin are not gills. Those little wrinkles under your chin when you're growing up later develop into bones in the ear and glands in the throat. They never have anything to do with breathing. I've seen folks that have five or six chins and they can't breathe through any of them but the top one. Those are not gill slits. Ernst Haeckel, though, said the turning point in his thinking was when he read Darwin's book. He made huge charts of his posters of his drawings of these embryos and traveled all over Germany and just about by himself converted the Germans to believing in evolution. Haeckel took a drawing of a dog and a human embryo and he changed them to make them look exactly alike. On top are Haeckel's fake drawings. Underneath are actual photographs of what he claimed he was drawing a picture of. Now either he's a lousy artist or he's a liar. Well, it turns out he's a liar. He was convicted of fraud by his own university, proven to be a fraud. But guess what? Haeckel's fake drawings are still used in textbooks in your state right now. It's only been proven wrong 125 years ago. I know it takes a while to get textbooks up to date, but that ought to be plenty of time. Adolf Hitler said, you let me control the textbooks, I'll control the state. Watch this sentence here carefully. Some kid's doing this for homework tonight. Boys and girls, do you think humans are still evolving? Now, what kind of question is that? Doesn't that question assume that evolution has happened? What if a kid doesn't believe in evolution? How is he supposed to do his homework tonight? That question does not teach him how to think critically. That teaches him what to think, not how to think. And when the kid gets done with this course, he's going to think he knows how to think. But he doesn't. He knows how to be told what to think. Brainwashing at taxpayer expense. They want to use my tax dollars to teach that to your kids in our schools. If you want to deny evolution, that's fine. But don't make your kids do it, because we need them. And that's where the problem comes in. Okay? If you want to believe in the Big Bang, just enjoy yourself. But keep your religion at home. The Russian atheist astronomer came to America and spoke at one of the universities, and he said, started off his speech. He said, folks, either there is a God or there isn't. Both possibilities are frightening. If there is no God, we're in trouble. We're hurtling through space around the sun right now at 66,000 miles an hour, and nobody's in charge. <laughs> That's a scary thought. But if God made the world, he owns it. That means he makes the rules. You see, if there is a God, we better find out who he is and find out what he wants and do what he says. 
Malcolm Muggeridge said, I am convinced the theory of evolution, especially the extent to which it's been applied, will be one of the great jokes in the history books of the future. It's a joke. And it would be a joke if it weren't for the tragic results. How many kids are taught this thing every day and believe it and it destroys their faith? Find you something to believe in. Whole thing, who do you even pray to? Nobody. Hey, if you died today, where would you go? You ought to think about it because you will be dead for a long time. Doesn't matter how long you live, you're going to be dead longer than that. You know, George Washington died 200 years ago, and he's still dead. How much longer does he have to go? You're going to be dead for a long time. All you get in this life is a little bitty dash between two dates. Just a little, and it's gone. What are you going to do with your dash? Where would you go if you died? Now, if you're not sure you're going to heaven, you ought to give your heart to the Lord and get saved. Say, Lord, you may have it, the whole thing. If you are saved, you ought to find something to do for the Lord. And you ought to quit worrying about getting a fancier car and a fancier house and start worrying about who's going to heaven or hell. Maybe God gave you that good job so you can give some money to missionaries, not so you can build a bigger, fancier house. God loves you. God has a plan for your life. And if you don't want it, well, that's your business. But the devil is laughing at you for believing in that. To Dr. Richard Lumsden, former professor of biology at Tulane University and Medical School, and the former dean of the graduate school, evolution was science, whereas creation was merely religion. And he taught as much to his students. What I would try to get across is that science is science. Science deals with the real world, with real phenomena. Uh, we don't bring into such discussions inferences of supernatural. Dr. Lumsden, who studied at Tulane, Harvard, and Rice, couldn't believe it when the Louisiana State Legislature passed a law that if evolution were taught in the public school classroom, then equal time had to be made for creation science. My reaction to that was just total consternation. Who are these people telling us, PhD-level scientists, how to teach and what to teach uh, regarding science? So uh, I, I just thought the whole thing was, was, was just absolutely absurd. But it was not the energy of a supernatural nature. I was prompted at that point to give a lecture on the uh, origin of life, giving creation its due with as much mockery as I could summon. Truly, in the beginning was the Word, but the Word was hydrogen. After that class, one of his graduate students came up to him and said, Great lecture, Doc. Well, that got my attention. Flattery always did. And she said, but I have some questions. And indeed, she did. She had a, a legal pad, and I could see line after line after line after line. So they had an appointment, which ended up lasting longer than anticipated. The appointment also ended up changing Dr. Lumsden's life. Now, I'm not trying to challenge anything. I just want to get my science straight. That's fair enough. Okay. That's well, fair enough. Last month, you taught how mutations were genetic disasters. How, by natural selection, can they randomly produce new and better structures? That's a good question. Good question. I'll probably have to think more about that. Okay. Well, aren't the odds of the random assembly of genes mathematically impossible? You've, uh had your share of mathematics. Let's see if we can't figure that out. Not only were we talking about a mathematical impossibility, we were talking about a physical and chemical impossibility, which gave me pause. 
genes, that might be 10 to the 200th, 10 to the... Hmm. Those are pretty formidable odds, aren't they? Mm -hmm. But the fact remains is that we're here. And in reality, the only way we could have gotten here is through the evolutionary process. So the fact that we're here really proves evolution, doesn't it? Hmm. And these are the events, molecular events, genetic events, that were mechanisms part and parcel of the evolutionary process. I could buffalo a student when I felt myself get a little bit in trouble, okay? I'd had a few years' experience at this, okay? It's a trade secret. But for the first time maybe in my life in explaining various facets of evolution theory, I began to listen to what I was saying. And what I was saying wasn't making very good scientific sense. Where exactly in the fossil record is the evidence for progressive evolution? The transitional forms between the major groups? You know, most of them, come to think of it, are fully formed kinds in their own right. This conversation with the young lady went on for approximately three hours, during which time, again, we, we entertain these questions, and the whole time I'm answering, I'm listening to my own responses and trying not to betray this to the student. I was rapidly concluding that this is not making good scientific sense. What I'm telling this young lady and what I told the students this morning is not good science. And so far, I guess, we just haven't been lucky enough to uh, pick up the uh, critical evidence. It dawned on me right then and there that evolution was, was bankrupt as a scientific theory. Well, if that were so, if, if, if life did not originate by a naturalistic, materialistic, spontaneous process, what was the alternative explanation? Oh my God. And I said it then, not in blasphemy, but in awe. What happened that afternoon was, first of all, a, a, a mortal embarrassment to me as a professor. Professing to be wise, the professor was made a fool. And then secondly, with the realization that, hey, God exists. And God created. Was that experience of fear. Now that's enough to turn a corner in anyone's life. After much study and soul-searching, Dr. Lumsden became a creationist first, and then a Christian. One event uh, led to the other, and uh, the culmination was finding myself before saving altar, on my knees, at stiff neck, broken, in obedience, asking Jesus to come into my life, to be my Lord and personal Savior. Today, Dr. Richard Lumsden, former evolutionary professor, is a committed creationist because of the scientific evidence. He has since openly debated evolutionists. He feels that in light of the great advances of science in the 20th century, evolution is no longer tenable. 
the evidence of science, the best in paleontology, the best in biochemistry, the best in genetics, and so on, is all compelling for creation. Creation theory does not rest on some purely metaphysical principles. It rests on the same science that evolution theory would rest on, except that the better explanation is creation, not naturalistic, materialistic, stochastic, or random evolutionary process. My question is, if humans and light and life were intelligently designed, then why do our bodies not show intelligent design so much as they reveal the evidence of evolutionary ancestry? I'm glad he's here. <laughs> well, this is going to keep us till after midnight, ladies and gentlemen. Bye. So I'm going to try and go to the heart of it. It poses an alternative, intelligent design or evolution. Now, evolution is a mechanism which consists basically of two things, natural selection and mutation. If you look around this room, you'll see we don't all look the same. Why is that? Well, there's been a good bit of selecting going on. And uh, there are also mutations from which we all suffer were different. So that mechanism does something. That's not controversial. Some of what Darwin observed was brilliantly observed. But now the confusions begin. Richard Dawkins, in his book, The Blind Watchmaker, said that evolution is the explanation for the existence and variation of all of life. That is false. Because the existence of life is not explained by biological evolution. Now, for the purposes of what I'm going to say, I'm not going to attempt to address the question whether biological evolution has limits. And now is a bit of shameless advertising. That's why I wrote this book. <laughs> to investigate that from my perspective as a mathematician. Let's assume that evolution does lots of things. But what it doesn't do is explain the existence of the mutating replicator on which it depends. And that mutating replicator is a micro-miniaturized factory of unbelievable sophistication. The language of life, the genetic code, is extremely ancient, according to what we're told. It's scarcely changed at all. And that raises immense questions as to how it could possibly have developed in the very short time available from the cooling of the earth till it was cool enough to support carbon-based life, which goes back to a very short time after the earth was cool enough. Now, this interests me as a mathematician, because the cell is an information processor. What we've got in the biological macromolecules is something that physics and chemistry do not know in the sense that You've got a signaling system, you've got a code, you've got a translator of the code. Now, in every other area where we see anything like that, the inference upward to intelligence is instant and immediate. It seems to me, without going further into it, 
that if you look at a cell as an information processing machine, it then can be simulated by a Turing machine, which is a kind of abstract computer. And all of you computer geeks will know, junk in, junk out. And that, I think, is borne out in the sophistication of what the cell is and what it does. Now, chemistry and physics do not have the capacity to produce these things. They can't produce them by evolution because evolution can't get going until you have a mutating replicator. So somehow it has to happen. And people have been working on it now since 1953 when Miller and Urey won the Nobel Prize because they thought they discovered the secret of life. Nobody knows. That is the confession of how life started. All I would suggest to you tonight, ladies and gentlemen, is this, that if you look at it, whatever mechanisms are involved, the very nature of the entity that we have now come to understand is part of the carrier of life, the thing that it seems to me to instantly shout at you is that whatever else is involved, there is a designing intelligence behind it. You see, what we've got is a choice. It's between in the beginning were the particles and energy, and somehow they came together to produce elements, which somehow came together to produce macromolecules, which somehow came together to produce life, which somehow came together to produce consciousness, which somehow came together to produce morality, which sometimes came together to produce the idea of God, because God doesn't exist. Or... You have in the beginning was the Word, and all things were made by him. That is, mass energy are not primary. They're derivative. And that makes sense. Isn't it fascinating that the longest word we know has been given to us in some of our lifetimes, and it's the genetic word that determines the human genome. We recognize instantly that short words are the product of intelligence. What keeps us back from recognizing that the long words are not products of intelligence? Could it be a prejudice that the solution has got to be an unguided naturalistic process? Why is there such pressure in that direction? Because, ladies and gentlemen, if life did not start by an unguided natural process, that is the end of materialism as a philosophy. And that's a very high price for some people to pay. Thank you. Yes, sir. Um, I'm not a Christian. I'm a Muslim. So pardon my questions. Uh, the Ten Commandments you talked about um, certainly provi provide a very uh, enlightening spiritual uh, guide for people, but as a society, compared to the Mosaic Law, where it has a single law for every single thing you're ever bound to do, uh, I, I see that really the, the laws that Jesus came with, the code of life he came up with. Sorry, code of? The code, the code of life that he's, he's supposed to have given us is not sufficient to envelop society like Jewish law or Islamic law. How do you think Christianity can fix the world if the absolute law that you demand 
is not present in Christianity itself. You can't love thy neighbor and love thy father and just bring it on from there. And okay, good question. And did you, say, did you say you're not a Christian but you're a Muslim? I'm a Muslim, yeah. Okay, I appreciate that, sir, and thanks for asking. I think it's a wonderful question, and I can see actually why you would even raise it because when you look at the Islamic code, everything is enjoined, everything is described from your diet and your fasting and all of that, it is all enshrined in, uh, and all the way up to the Sharia and the court and the law, etc. Jesus stood in stark distinction to both Islam and in the way the Judaizers were using the law. He never came to destroy the law. He made that very clear. He came to establish it. What he reminded us is that by the keeping of the law, no flesh can be justified. This is a fundamental difference between Islam and Christianity. That in my faith, I can be absolutely certain that I am forgiven. Not because I am righteous. For you it would be purely the will of Allah, whether he chooses to grant you that salvation or not. But don't ever forget that what Jesus actually said was transcend the written law in any way. For example, he says, you say, you know, you shall not commit adultery. He said, I'm telling you, if you look upon a woman with lust, you have already committed adultery in your heart. He has already established that now on a higher plane. He says, if you hate somebody, you've already committed murder. If anything, he establishes it on a higher plane than either uh, the Quranic law or the, uh, the, the Judaizers would have used. So let me take you to what I think is a classic response to your question. If you take the Sermon on the Mount and see what Jesus said is the characteristic of the child of the kingdom, you've got there inscripted not only what the moral boundaries are, it's not my law by the way, uh, what the moral boundaries are, but how only by the change of heart and beginning with the poverty of spirit can you come into that relationship and live as a child of the kingdom. For example, when he took the whole story of the uh, Good Samaritan, you know, uh, the person questioning Jesus said, who is my neighbor? Did you notice, do you remember how Jesus answered that? He basically answered it not by telling him who his neighbor was, but to whom are you being neighborly? He said it again on a higher plane. So I think the difference between, say, what you are raising for me and what the Christian faith would give to you is that the Christian faith is not devoid of a moral law. It sets it on a higher plane and reminds you and me that we cannot keep it in and of ourselves. Jesus described the moral law as a mirror you can look at a mirror and find out that your face is dirty, but you don't go and rub your face on the mirror to clean it. So you go to something other than the mirror, and the, and the law, says the Apostle Paul, is a schoolmaster. If anybody knew what the moral law was, it was the Apostle Paul. And he found out at the end that it was only the grace of God and the mercy of God that was able to give him salvation. It doesn't deny the law, it affirms it, and shows ultimately the impossibility for you and me to keep it. So it, is not, it does not destroy the law. It shows that he alone completely fulfilled it. No one else ever did. When I do debates, there's always somebody during Q&A time at the university that says, there are contradictions in the Bible.
As a brand new Christian, age uh, 16, I went to the Methodist church camp one more time, because I'd been going to the Baptist church, but at the Methodist church camp, where I had been going before, the counselor sat us boys down on the bed and said, hey, hey guys, who are you? you know, how old are you? Where do you live? Etc. And we told him our names. We're all sitting around in the bunks there. And he said, well, my name is, whatever it was, George or something. He said, I'm a student at University of Illinois, and I want you to know I'm a humanist. Well, I didn't know what a humanist was, so I said, does that mean you believe in humans? He said, well, I do believe in humans, but no, that's not what that means. He said, uh, I said, well, do you believe the Bible? He said, well, the Bible's a good book, but it has lots of errors. Now, I had only been saved for a few months, but I was smart enough to know, because my preacher told me, if anybody ever says the Bible's full of errors, hand them your Bible and say, show me one. So I handed him my Bible and says, well, show me one. He said, I'll be glad to. Here's what he showed me. Genesis chapter 1. The Bible says pretty clearly in chapter 1, the earth brought forth grass and herb yielding seed and fruit trees. This happened on the third day. The counselor said, Kent, when did God make the trees? I said, day three. He said, all right. Verse 20, day five. Let the waters bring forth abundantly the moving creature that hath life and fowl that may fly above the earth. He said, Kent, when did God make the birds? I said, day five. He said, what did he make the birds out of? I said, well, it looks like he made them out of the water. Correct. You know, he made Adam out of the dirt, made Eve out of a rib, made the birds out of the water. That's what it says, okay? Verse 24. Let the earth bring forth the living creature. He said, now, Kent, what did God make the creatures out of? I said, he made them out of the earth, he made the birds out of the water, made the animals out of the dirt. And then he made man. He said, that's chapter 1. Now look at chapter 2. And the Lord God formed man of the dust of the ground, and the Lord God planted a garden eastward in Eden, and there he put the man whom he had formed. And the Lord God made grow every tree. He said, wait, wait, wait. I thought the trees were made on day three and man on day six. Here we have the man made and then the trees after man, which is correct. Were the trees made before man or after man? Have you ever been in an argument with somebody and you, you knew you're losing? You've been, you married guys know about that. You just know, you know I'm losing this argument. Okay, you might as well stop right now. Right? You might as well just quit. Verse 18. The Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him and help meat for him. And out of the ground, the Lord God formed every beast of the field and every fowl of the air. Oh, here we got two problems. You got the animals made after man, and you got the birds made after man, and the birds are made out of the ground instead of out of the water. He said, Kent, the Bible's a good book, but it's got lots of contradictions. Just in the first two chapters, did the chapter one say the grass, plants, trees made on day three? Chapter two has plants and trees made after man on day six. Chapter 1 has birds made out of the water on day 5. Chapter 2 has birds made out of the ground on day 6. Chapter 1 has animals made before man. Chapter 2 has animals made after man. He said, the Bible's a good book, but it's not God's Word. I'd only been saved a couple of months, and I was crushed in my faith. It seems to happen to every young Christian. Satan sends somebody along to destroy their faith and get them derailed. Well, that caught me, I'll tell you what. The rest of that week is camp, at camp, I was a defeated young Christian. Well, I wish I could find that guy today. I can answer his question now, okay? Here's what happened. On the third day, God made the plants, okay? Grass, plants, trees. On the fifth day, he made the birds out of the water. On the sixth day, he made the animals. And then he made man. And then he made the garden and put the man in the garden. Now, all of chapter 2 is describing what happened in the garden only. It's not describing the whole world. God made more trees, and it's only the two kinds, the trees that are good for food and the trees that are good to the sight. Beautiful garden. The rest of the world's already full of trees. 
he's describing what happened in the garden. And then he made one more of each animal so that Adam could name them and select a wife. And so while Adam's standing there, up out of the ground is coming one more of each animal. Now the rest of the world's already full of animals. This is just for Adam to see God do it and to make a wife and to create a wife, to select a wife. Up comes a giraffe. He says, giraffe, no thanks. You know, hippopotamus, no thanks. You know, elephant, no thanks. Hamster, no thanks. You know, one by one, Adam names all the animals and rejects them as a wife. And then the Lord says, Adam, go to sleep, son. I've got a surprise for you when you wake up. Put Adam to sleep, took one rib and made the world's first loudspeaker. I mean, the world's first woman. Okay. And uh, so this is only describing what's happening in the garden. Now, it's interesting. If you look at the sequence here, Adam actually saw God create things. Eve never saw that. Suppose God had made Adam last. Satan could walk in and say, hey, Adam, how do you like this beautiful garden I made? And Adam would have doubts the rest of his life. Boy, who really made this? I don't know. I trust you, God, but I don't know. He would, there's no way he could know. Now, the fact is, Eve never saw God create anything. So who did Satan go to to trick? Eve. The weaker vessel, First Timothy says. So that's what happened. There are no contradictions in the Bible. Chapter 1 and chapter 2 are both fine. The Bible says in First Timothy, Adam was first formed, then Eve, and Adam was not deceived, but the woman being deceived was in the transgression. Adam knew full well what he was doing. When she walked up and handed him that banana or whatever it was, say it's an apple, I don't know, we don't know, it's a fruit, okay? He said, oh, brother, Eve, you blew it. He looked at that and he knew if I don't become sin for her, God's going to have to kill her. I think Adam, knowing full well what he was doing, voluntarily took that fruit, ate it, and said, God, whatever you do to her, you've got to do it to me too. That's what I think. Just like Jesus Christ voluntarily became sin for us so that he could save us and we could become the bride of Christ. That'll preach. Okay. As a young Christian, I was reading my Bible and came across Second Chronicles chapter 4. And it says, Solomon made a great sea of ten cubits from brim to brim and five cubits the height thereof and a line of thirty cubits did compass it about. I read that. I set my Bible down on my bed and I said, Lord, this is wrong. If it's 10 cubits across, it's not 30 cubits around. Anybody that studies mathematics knows to find the circumference of a circle, it's diameter times pi, 3.14159265. I said it should not be 30 cubits around. It should be 31.415, you know, cubits around. Why did he say 30 cubits around? I thought there was an error in the Bible, and I was going to quit Christianity. And I read the passage and read it and read it and read it and said, wait a minute, wait, 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 I'm missing something here. Verse 5 says it was a handbreadth thick. That's a lot of brass, that thick. And the brim of it was like the work of the brim of a cup. There are two theories of how to solve this supposed contradiction. One theory says it was 10 cubits outside to outside, not counting the thickness of the brass. Now that'll work. If you take 10 cubits, elbow to fingertip, subtract two handbreadths, and calculate backwards, you'll get a value of pi for the inner circumference of 3.14159. It'll work fine. You can give it a try. The other theory is that it says it had a brim like a cup. The bowl went up and had a brim coming out. So it's 30 cubits around the bowl, but 10 cubits across brim to brim, counting the little lip sticking out like most cups are bent out just a little bit. Either theory would probably solve the problem. No, there are no contradictions. So First Kings says, Solomon made this molten sea that held 2,000 baths. A bath is about 8 gallons. Yet Second Chronicles says it held 3,000 baths. 
what was it, 2,000 baths or 3,000 baths? By the way, 3,000 baths, 24,000 gallons, is a small to mid-sized swimming pool. Okay, it's the kind you put in your backyard. That's a 24,000-gallon pool. That's a lot of water or oil or whatever they're going to put in this thing. Well, Second Chronicles says it held 3,000 baths. First Kings says it contained 2,000 baths. Is that a contradiction? No, it's not full. It's two-thirds full, okay? It could hold 3,000, but it's only got 2,000 in it. How many horses did Solomon have? This is a contradiction the atheists always bring up. First Kings says Solomon had 40,000 stalls of horses for his chariots and 12,000 horsemen. Second Chronicles says Solomon had 4,000 stalls for horses and chariots and 12,000 horsemen. Well, which is it, 40,000 or 4,000? Now, we sell on our website the Defender's Bible by Henry Morris. I love Henry Morris and the Defender's Bible. He's a good personal friend of mine, his son John Morris, good friend of mine, love what they're doing. In the Defender's Bible, he's got a footnote right here that says this is a copyist error. He says, this number is given as 4,000 in Second Chronicles. This is best explained as a copyist error. Well, I read that, and I wrote a letter to Henry Morris and said, Brother, I love you, I sell your Bible, but I'm going to have to put a disclaimer in the front page. You have a mistake, actually quite a few mistakes, in your footnotes. And so I have a one-page disclaimer that goes with our Defender's Bible that we sell. They've got to stack up in shipping if you want to read it that says, uh, we love Henry Morris, he's got many good notes in here, but like anything, you've got to eat the meat and spit out the bones. He's wrong about this one. There is not a copyist error. Both of those verses are absolutely fine. Read them carefully. Solomon had 40,000 stalls of horses for his chariots. Does that tell me how many chariots he had? No. That, tell me how, that tells me how many horses he had for the chariots, right? For Second Chronicles. And Solomon had 4,000 stalls for horses and chariots. Oh, now that's, that's different. Apparently he had stalls for to keep the horses and chariots, and he had other stalls just for the horses for the chariots. Well, if they had 40,000 stalls of horses for the chariots, and he had 4,000 stalls for horses and chariots, they had 10 horses per stall. 10 horses per chariot, I'm sorry. Not a contradiction at all. King James got it exactly correct. Ten horses per chariot. They would never put one horse per chariot. I mean, one arrow takes out the whole tank. They had chariot teams, actually. NIV got it wrong. New American Standard got it right. I collect other Bible versions. I got a bunch of them here. Uh, <clears throat> New Revised Standard got it wrong. How many men did David kill? 700 or 7,000. Well, look at the passages carefully. The Syrians fled before Israel, and David slew the men of 700 chariots of the Syrians. First Chronicles, David slew of the Syrians 7,000 men which fought in chariots. Well, which is it? 700 or 7,000? Read it carefully. Again, Henry Morris has a footnote here that says this is a copyist error. No, I'm sorry, Henry, it is not a copyist error. Both verses are fine. Look at them carefully. If he slew the men of 700 chariots, and he slew 7,000 men which fought in chariots, what does that mean? Ten men per chariot. They had ten men and ten horses. They had chariot teams. You go out, you fight for a while, you come back, you swap out. See, the chariot does not get tired. The men and horses get tired. And the chariot is your tank. You don't want to lose that thing. So somebody gets wounded, you know, hurt, bring them back, swap out. They had chariot teams. NIV got it wrong. He killed 700 of their charioteers and 7,000 of their charioteers. There's a clear contradiction. Most of the new Bible versions that I'm aware of have some real serious contradictions built in. 
I'm not aware of any in the King James. The Bible says in Genesis 10, these are the sons of Shem after their families, after their tongues. So the languages are divided in chapter 10. But you read chapter 11, it says the whole earth was of one language. When I debated Farrell Till, who's the editor of an um, atheist magazine up in Illinois, he said, oh, the Bible's got a contradiction. Chapter 10 says the languages were divided up, and chapter 11 says the whole world's of one language. See, the Bible's wrong. Farrell, chapter 11 is recapping like giving a headline. Suppose you saw the headlines in the paper, 10 children killed in school bus accident. Then you start reading the article, and it says, the bus was driving down Highway 12. You say, wait, I thought, I thought they had a wreck. Yeah, the headline is summarizing the story, and now they're going back and giving the details, okay? Chapter 10 summarizes the story, and chapter 11 is going through and giving some of the details. Not a contradiction. Here's another supposed contradiction. How many died in the plague? Numbers 25 says, those that died in the plague were 20 and 4,000. When you read the story in 1 Corinthians, it says there fell in one day 3 and 20,000. Well, which is it? 24,000 died in the plague, according to Numbers. Or is it 23,000 died in the plague? Well, again, read it carefully. No contradiction. How many died in the plague? 24,000. How many died in one day? 23,000. Well, 1,000 died the next day from the same plague. It's not a contradiction at all. So we go through in our college class quite a few of the supposed contradictions in the Bible. If you think there are some, you can uh, contact our office on our uh, um, during our radio program, we have all kinds of time. We can take an hour and a half question every day on questions, supposed contradictions in the Bible or questions on creation or evolution. Another contradiction people often ask about is, isn't the word Easter in the King James Bible an error? Didn't they make a mistake here? Every other version of the Bible, and I've got a whole collection of them here on the table, they, they use the word Passover in Acts chapter 12, verse 4. Look up Acts 12, 4, and they say, after Passover. King James says, after Easter. Well, let's read the passage and see what the truth is, okay? Um, now, about that time, Herod the king stretched forth his hands to vex certain of the church, and he killed James, the brother of John, with a sword. And because he saw it pleased the Jews, he proceeded further to take Peter also. Then were the days of unleavened bread. And when he apprehended him, he put him in prison, delivered him to four quaternions of soldiers, intending after Easter to bring him forth to the people. Is Easter a mistake? All the other versions say Passover right there. Well, let's go back and study the original Passover. In Exodus chapter 12, the Lord said to Moses, Aaron and Aaron, he said, This month, talking about April, is, shall be the beginning of months. It shall be the first month of the year to you. Speak unto all the congregation of Israel. In the tenth day of this month, take a lamb. April 10th, you pick out a lamb, keep it up for four days. On the fourth day, April 14th, you kill it and you eat it that night. That was the Passover when they were getting ready to go out of Egypt. Okay. And then you put the blood on the two side posts and on the, and the top of your door. It says, they shall eat the flesh that night, April 14th. Kill the lamb, put the blood on the door, eat the lamb that night. Verse 11. It's the Lord's Passover. Eat it in haste, have your shoes on, hold your staff in your hand. Jews today still go through this, you know. Every year they go through the Passover celebration. Amazing to watch. We did this as a kid. Uh, my mom had us do this several times. We loved it, okay? Verse 14. This day shall be unto you a memorial. You shall keep it a feast. Verse 15. Seven days shall you eat unleavened bread. Here's the sequence. Tenth day, pick out a lamb. Watch it for four days. Make sure no blemishes. Fourteenth day, kill it. That night is the Passover. The death angel passed over the children of Israel if they had the blood on the doorpost. Eat, the, eat it that night, 
For the next seven days, you're going to be traveling around, running from Pharaoh, and so you eat unleavened bread. They had their kneading troughs, put the bread in there, but no leaven, wrapped it up, put it on their shoulder, carried it around through the wilderness, and ate unleavened bread for seven days. That was the seven days of unleavened bread. And they still today do that to commemorate uh, the, with this, the great Passover. It reminds them, so for seven days they eat unleavened bread. Verse 17, You shall observe the feast of unleavened bread. 18, In the first month, in the fourteenth day of the month at even, you shall eat unleavened bread until the one and twentieth day of the month at even. Starting the fourteenth, for the next seven days, till the twenty-first, eat unleavened bread. Numbers chapter 28. The fourteenth day of the first month is the Passover. And the fifteenth day of the month is the feast. Seven days shall unleavened bread be eaten. So here's the sequence of events. The Passover was always at night on April the 14th. For the next seven days, they ate unleavened bread that always followed the Passover. Now there was a pagan festival of Ishtar or Ashtar, or today called Ishtar, is Easter. That was a pagan festival that always came near the end of April. And it was so many days after the first full moon, and they had all kinds of formulas to figure out when this day come. And we still use the same formulas today to calculate when Easter is. But Easter was a pagan holiday to commemorate the earth regenerating itself. You know, things start to grow again. you got Easter lilies. And so that's why they have all kinds of regeneration symbolism in the, in the Easter holiday. Easter bunny, like Playboy bunny, okay? Uh, all stuff on fertility symbols, Easter rabbits, the Easter eggs. Those are all symbols of fertility, and it is definitely a pagan holiday. Now, is it something worth fighting and beating somebody up over? No, okay? Christ did rise from the dead, and if you want to celebrate that day, that's fine. People get carried away over these holidays and go around, you know, refuse to celebrate any holidays. I don't think you ought to do that. But you need to understand, Christmas and Easter both are pagan holidays, no question. That date, anyway, is. But I don't think it's nothing worth beating somebody up over. So, the feast days are never called Passover anywhere in Scripture. Peter was arrested during the days of unleavened bread. It says so very clearly in Acts 12, which means the Passover was already gone. Has to be. Herod wanted to kill him during his own pagan festival of Easter coming up in a few days. King James is the only version to get it right. Look at Acts 12 now, verse uh, 3. Then were the days of unleavened bread. And when he apprehended him, he put him in prison, delivering to four quaternions of soldiers to keep him intending after Easter to bring him forth to the people. King James is the only one that got it right. And we'll cover more on that in a minute. The guy who invented the word Passover is William Tyndale. He made up that word, and he didn't use that word in Acts 12 and in his translation. Let me cover more of that in our college class. How did King Saul die? This heretics will say, well, look, it's got a contradiction here in the Bible. In 1 Samuel chapter 31, it says, Saul took a sword and fell on it and killed himself. He committed suicide. He asked the armor bearer, hey, will you kill me? I'm wounded. The guy said, no, I'm scared. And so Saul killed himself. When you read chapter 2, the arm, this guy walks up to King David at the camp and says, hey, here's Saul's crown and his jewelry. You know, I, I killed him. Because you know, he knew David and Saul were enemies. And the Amalekite said, uh, I stood upon him and slew him because I was sure that he could not live after that he was fallen. Well, did he die by suicide or did he die by the Amalekite? There's no contradiction here. He died by suicide, and this guy's lying. He's hoping to get a reward. Hey, David, I killed Saul. Ha-ha, give me my reward, please. David's reward was, I'm going to cut off your head, son, okay? 
Uh, so there's all kinds of supposed contradictions in the Bible, and we cover a lot of these in our college classes, or if you can call into our radio program. We'll just cover a couple more because we could spend forever on supposed contradictions. There's a book called The Errors in the King James Bible by Peter Ruckman. It used to be called Problem Texts. It's basically the same book with a different cover on it. But in here, he covers 500 of the supposed contradictions in the Bible. We've got about 90 pages of uh, data on supposed contradictions in our website uh, on our uh, downloadable section on articles about contradictions. Here's one I, atheists always get to me. They'll say, was Jonah swallowed by a whale or a fish? If you read Jonah chapter 1, it says, the Lord prepared a great fish to swallow up Jonah, and he was three days and three nights in the fish's belly. Okay? Verse 2, chapter 2, verse 1, he was in the fish's belly. But when you read the story in Matthew chapter 12, it says, Jonah was three days and three nights in the whale's belly. And the atheist will say, aha, see, the Bible's wrong, a fish is not, a whale's not a fish, ha, ha, ha. Well, in our modern 21st century classification system, a whale is not a fish. But in the biblical classification system, a whale is a fish. If it swims in the water, it's a, a dolphin is a fish in biblical classification system. So you can't take, you know, Carolus Linnaeus's classification system in the last 200 years and superimpose that on the Bible and call the Bible wrong. No, it's a whale and a fish are the same thing in biblical classification. And we could talk about some of the little minor stuff. There's about 500 passages that people commonly say are mistakes in the Bible. And all of them are covered in Ruckman's book. He's a little rude, crude, and unnecessarily mean about it, but it's, he's right, okay? His logic is really good. This one, the atheists love coming up with this one. They'll say, well, do, do insects have four feet? And I say, no. Well, sort of, because I know where they're headed with that one. In Leviticus chapter 11, it says, These may ye eat of every flying, creeping thing, the locust, the beetle, the grasshopper, but other flying, living things, which have four feet, shall be an abomination unto you. They'll say, see, insects have six legs. Everybody knows that. Moses must have been stupid, or there's a contradiction in the Bible. Well, I'm sure Moses saw plenty of insects during his life, and he knew about the six legs. Why did he say four feet? Well, insects do have six legs, according to our way of thinking. We have a model here of a giant, uh, this is a giant mosquito, okay? Somebody made for us out of copper pipe. And they say, see, it's got six legs. Well, sort of. Spiders, do they have eight legs? Well, we better be cautious here how we define this. If you look at the Bible carefully, you'll see in the book of Proverbs, chapter 30, it says, the spider taketh hold with her hands. Could it be that four of them, which point backwards, are considered feet, and the four that point forward are considered hands? Just because we consider them all eight legs doesn't mean the spider considers them eight legs. If a spider is going to do something like, you know, maneuver things around, it's going to use its hands. How about the uh, mosquito? Does he have six legs or four legs and two hands? Just because he happens to walk on all six of them doesn't mean they're all legs. I don't think there's a contradiction in the Bible. If God is all-powerful, uh, all all-knowing, why would he still choose to create a world where it's going to fall apart and uh, we're going to have atrocities like we have now when uh, he knows that that's going to be the outcome of what we choose? Yeah. Okay. Uh, when you deal with the whole effect which is what we are living in, whatever the cause, when we deal with the effect, what we have now, you have three or four possible options. 
One option is that it would have been better to have no creation at all than to have this one. Okay? Number two, would it have been better if he'd only created people who would only choose good? Right? That's the second option. Number one, no creation. Number two, where we would only choose good. Number three, where there were no such thing as would it be better if they, he'd created a world where there was no such thing as good or evil, an amoral world. Or as far as we know, the only other option is, or this world where there's a possibility of good and evil, knowing that we would still choose evil and all the entailments that you have uh, uh, mentioned here. So no creation, only good, no such thing as good or evil, or this particular world. It is interesting, when we raise the question, we metaphysically introduce a moral framework. Would it have been better? Would it have been better? Would it have been better? If it had been morally better, the only reason to justify the question again is that there is such a thing as good or evil. Otherwise, the question is moot or self-defeating. Now, since we invoke a moral framework, and you cannot invoke a moral framework in an amoral world, then the question is, what is the ultimate ethic? And the ultimate ethic, as I see it, is the ethic of love. And so this world is, may not be the best of all possible worlds, but it may be the best of all possible means to the best of all possible worlds. So I think that created order with the envisionment of love as a supreme ethic is still makes the possibility the supreme ethic which the other three worlds would not have made possible at all. We're living in a world that's in deep trouble. Economically, politically, morally, spiritually. Richard Dawkins says he has four gaps he needs to fill and then he'll fill up his philosophical framework. He says the gap is how life came from non-life, the gap of morality, the gap of consciousness, and the gap of sexuality. Pretty big gaps. God of the gaps has shifted location. He's got to fill it out there. The biggest gap you have to fill in your life is that of meaning and destiny. What does your life mean? What does it really mean? And what hope is there? Jesus said he would bodily rise from the dead. If he were a fake person, he would have said he'd spiritually rise, and that would be the end of it. You'd never be able to falsify his claim. But he said he'd bodily rise so that there'd be a material body of demonstration or a falsifiability if the body was still there. And he never rose. He was not fooling with you. He's not playing games with you. He changed my life on a bed of suicide, changed his life, changed his, and millions of others all over the globe. You come to him and ask him to reveal himself to you. He'll give you that meaning, that hope, and that destiny of what life is really all about. I spent a whole afternoon with one of the four founders of Hamas, Sheikh Talal. The Middle East is sitting on a keg that one is afraid might explode very quickly. The chief of intelligence of one country in the Middle East told me, I give this part of the world no more than five, maximum ten, and it's over. Sheikh Talal and I were in conversation, and I said to him, Sheikh, in his home in Ramallah, very close to where you and I are sitting is a mountain. 
I said 5,000 years ago, a man by the name of Abraham went up that mountain to express his faith. He was willing to sacrifice his own son, and God stopped his hand and said no. And the sheikh nodded. I said, you know what God said after that? He said, no. I said, God said, stop. I myself will provide. He said, yes. I said, sheikh, very close to where you and I are sitting is a hill. It's called Calvary. I said, 2,000 years ago, God kept that promise and brought his own son and offered his son. I said, Sheikh Talal, until you and I receive the son that God has provided, we'll be offering our own sons and daughters on the battlefields of this world for power, position, land, and prestige. There was dead silence in the room. And I thought, brother, I've had it. As I was walking away from there, the archbishop who was with me, the former archbishop, put his arm around me. He said, Ravi, that was of God. I said, I sure hope so. <laughs> As we walked down the stairs and went to our waiting cars, I was about to get in when the sheikh, a strong man, came over to me and pulled me towards him. And he looked me in the eye, patted me on both sides of the face and kissed me. And he said, Dr. Zacharias, he said, you're a good man. I hope I see you again. I'm not asking you to take our word for it. I'm just asking you to check the scriptures. He gave his son so that you and I and our sons and daughters might live. The gospel is not nonsense. It's the most profound expression of what matters to us the most, our relationships, and you will never find that until you found a relationship with God himself who has made you in his own image to have communion with him and love and respect for your fellow human being.